0: Welcome, welcome to Medical Experts in Football. I'm Tawa Desheekman, the host of this amazing podcast filled with sports medicine and soccer and, of course, culture. And I'm really thrilled you're tuning in today.
1: Yeah, I think pronunciation, say like hamstring, hamstring, and it, 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 in my head, I find it hard sometimes to know what I'm speaking. Um, <laughs>
0: A British sports medicine physician completed his medical training in England, that followed with a sports medicine specialty training in Holland, and then he completed his PhD on the treatment of corn injuries in athletes. And if you've read the Doha groin agreement on terminology definitions in groin pain in athletes, he is one of many authors. But there's much more that he does on a daily basis, like dreaming in a second language and eating nachos with his family. Here's Dr. Adam
1: Weir
2: Your homeland is not in Ham, England, but now you reside in Holland, Netherlands. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. So I, I am English, but I've been in Holland for, yeah, it must be getting on 20 years, which oh. kind of explains the the accent, which is a, a mix-up, as you probably hear. Yeah.
2: I was just going to ask that, you know, uh, is your accent still going pretty strong?
1: Yeah, I think it's become a hybrid over the years. Certainly when I go back to England, I was there at Christmas for the first time, you know, seeing my brother since two and a half years because of the whole COVID situation and when I go back home people always laugh um, <laughs> Like because I have a lot of Dutch in my English accent. I think i probably got more Dutch in my English than I do English in my Dutch.
2: Like give me an example when you say you got more Dutch, like are there certain words or uh, how you announce certain things?
1: Yeah I think pronunciation say like hamstring, hamstring and it. it, it in my head I, I find it hard sometimes to know what I'm speaking. Um, you can also dream in your second language I'll never forget after being here for about a year and a half that I woke up and I said to my wife like hey I, I dreamt in Dutch last night and I never realized that dreams were related to the to the language but they, they are
2: that's interesting I had never known that well no. before we get to medicine I do have to ask you about football because growing up in the UK, as we know, it's a mad football sports country. Did you grow up
1: playing? I went to school in uh, the, my primary school. I don't know what the American word is for primary school. Elementary school. Elementary, yeah. So elementary up to the age of 11 was in the, in the inner city in Nottingham. Mm-hmm. Uh, great place to go to school. Fantastic teachers in a truly multicultural environment. And there, every playtime after school, we're just kicking a ball around. Um, outside of school, I spent a lot of time playing tennis and uh, playing basketball. Oh. And then I went to secondary school and I went to, which would be, I think your high school, is that right?
2: High school. We have elementary, middle and then high school.
1: Oh, OK. So this is 11 to 16. Oh, yeah. Um, high school, about. yeah. And that was in a, in a mining village just outside of Nottingham where I would take the bus each day. And that school had great sporting facilities because the school was right next to the village leisure centre. So we also had a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. But basically physical education classes, most of the year round was uh, football or rugby. So uh, And then on Sundays, we would play football. Uh, Kids and dads go down to the park, jumpers for goalposts. And I have really fond memories of those. Yeah. Those days. Uh, so, uh-huh. no, nothing professional, no strips, anything like that. But I've, I've played a lot of football and always been fanatical, but rubbish, I would describe myself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, if a tourist were to visit Nottingham, what is one natureistic place you'd recommend them to visit? And then give me a recommendation for the best meal that they should have when they're there.
1: I mean, if I if I flip it around, Tywo, and I say Nottingham, what, what things pop into your head? Because it's famous for a few things. Do you have any God. associations with Nottingham yourself? Oh,
2: you're testing me. This is not normal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I went to the UK. I was uh, in the city called Woolwich. So I don't know yeah. how far that is from Nottingham. But I'll be honest with you. Um, I don't really have any meals that really jumped out that I ate there because yep. I felt like everything was more like Americanized or it just wasn't completely authentic. Or let me say that when I lived in Sweden, it just felt like I was always eating cold potatoes or like fish. It's like, I want some <laughs> hot food. I don't know if you've been to the state, but we have like nachos. It's fattening. It has all the good stuff in it. I Do you guys have that?
1: Yeah, and, and nacho is one of our favorite family meals. Um, oh. And our, our kids are quite proficient at cooking that we call it the nacho oven dish, where oh, we'll make okay. like a, a vegetarian base, put some nacho chips on that and sprinkle that with cheese and put it in the oven. That's In fact, we might well eat that this evening. Um, So I I, I do love the nachos, but I'm not going to try and convince you that's English. (laughs) I know it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Coming back to Nottingham, I mean, worldwide, Nottingham is probably most famous for Robin Hood. Um, And it's where Robin Hood, the, the legend of Robin Hood came from. There's still ongoing discussion as to whether or not he really existed. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of films about Robin Hood, probably the the most famous one with Kevin Costner and Morgan Freeman.
2: Yeah.
1: So we get a lot of tourists in Nottingham. They come there from the U.S. in particular. And I remember we used to go and hang out and also play some football. There was a great grass field outside the the castle and people (laughs) would turn up and excuse my U.S. accent, but they would be like, yeah, where's the castle? And <laughs> the one from the movie, and we would say, well, the, the real the real castle got blown up in a, in a war in the Middle Ages,
0: uh-huh. and
1: is replaced by just a, a nice white stately home on a rock above the town, um, yeah. and the, mm-hmm. the castles that are portrayed in the films aren't in Nottingham, so... For sure, oh. Nottingham Castle is is worth a visit, and it's just been renovated. Okay, but it's not a, a medieval castle like you'd see in the real Robin Hood film. So, well, that's good visit, to know. But,
0: that's good
2: to know when I go there.
1: But, yeah, I mean, avoid disappointments. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I do have to ask you because I remember you exchanged an email with me and said, you know. Sometimes you're going surfing and I thought, you know, where the heck in Europe did you learn how to surf and how are you surfing when it's only warm like two months of the year?
1: <laughs> so to start with the last one, the, the, you just got to have a good wetsuit. Uh-huh. Um, and to be honest with you, I don't surf in the winter here either. Often for me and I go with my daughters, the waves will be too big and uh, too too rough out in the North Sea midwinter and your feet just freeze off. So I am a bit of a, a, a good weather surfer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned as a as a kid, we went down to Cornwall. I used to take the bus. It's about an eight hour journey to a place called Nuki, which is on the the southern western tip of the UK.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that gets the Gulf Stream and some Atlantic swell, and has fantastic sandy beaches. They do have some real surfing competitions there. Yeah, don't misunderstand me that I can surf well, (laughs) but I I do enjoy just hanging out, being in the water, being active, trying to catch some waves. I I fall off more than I ride, for sure. And over the years, uh, I'm approaching 50, I'm just getting stiffer and stiffer. So... (laughs) (laughs) my my pop is just suffering in terms of lack of mobility
2: yeah well you know i'll have to youtube and see how um brits do surfing because i can think of you know people in south africa being great surfers. so i might compare videos and see where where um you guys are lacking Mm -hmm. well adam you know we got to get into sports medicine because i know that some listeners are like you know i want to hear what he has to say and not what else i'm curious about now when i looked at your history it just seems like you were a doctor on a mission you went from medical training in the uk to holland for your sports medicine specialty and then 2011 you received your phd on the treatment of groin injuries and in athletes before starting medical school what did you envision doing with with a medical degree
1: interestingly enough i wanted to be a psychiatrist i read anthony Saxter, the man who mistook his wife for a hut and i was oliver Sax. sorry and i was completely intrigued by the brain uh, psychiatry all the, the the kind of the mysteries of the mind and i really thought oh i'll i'll want to be a psychiatrist and in the fourth year of medical school we had some different rotations and I rotated through psychiatry in a closed ward I found it incredibly depressing the 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 people were locked up in a fairly miserable and monkey environment where everything was kind of broken and dirty and just sitting around smoking cigarettes all day and I thought like gosh if you're mentally ill this environment isn't going to help you to get better. Um, and they could order takeaway curries and the local curry house hit drugs in their curry and it was yeah. I just really thought like this is this is a sort of a a, a sick making environment, not a not an environment where people get better. And to be honest, that really shocked me and i tried to do some gardening with them and went jogging with them because i've always enjoyed being active and i <laughs> <Yeah>. don't know <laughs> get, the, get them out and take them for a run and maybe that'll help them feel better yeah. and the next rotation that we did i elected to do seven weeks of sports medicine and basically never look back yeah he, a man on a mission i don't know that's I've also had a lot of good fortune and a lot of (laughs) good opportunities have come my way, but I was sold immediately. And then
2: what about sports medicine were you sold on?
1: I think working with, with active people um in in a lot of medical specialties you you work with behavioral change and you're trying to help people perhaps do more than they currently do so you know if you work with obesity or something you might try and be working to get patients to be more active the most the majority of patients i would see in clinic would like to be more active than they can be so it's like a reverse situation and Mm -hmm. you meet all kinds of inspiring folks it's a kind of it, it's an exaggeration to say you get energy from all your patients, but certainly, you know, the last few weeks, you I've seen people who've been cycling the European Divide Trail that's 6,300 kilometers on a bike with a tent or,
0: wow.
1: you know, Amazing. wanting to run all kinds of weird and wonderful uh, trail runs, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, go, going all over the place with lots and lots of really cool ambitions or, or just, yeah. you know, playing lots of football players as well. So,
2: okay. Yeah, but that inspiration uh, in sports medicine, I mean, you clearly wanted more because you then went to get a PhD. I guess, why did you feel the need to do that? And how has, has that helped you in your practice as a medical or sports medicine doctor?
1: I feel really fortunate for for having been given that opportunity. And it's in no small part due to the the, the people who were training me at that time. So when you enter the registrar program, as we would call that, so you go from being just a junior doctor and then it's a four-year program to specialize in sports medicine. The two consultants at that time, uh, Don De Winter and Hans Toll, were just such good mentors for me. Uh, and Don has a really big clinical experience and a, and a fantastic sort of mentor and trainer. And uh, Hans too. And... Hans has always had an interest in science. He's now a professor in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And I think it was their support and enthusiasm that was truly, truly kind of foundational in that sense. Without them, if I'd been in a center training where you weren't encouraged to do research, mm-hmm. then I may well have ended up having a, a real different career path. But as a as a registrar, you're expected to research something and it, fortune just said that that was the groin. <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, one paper led to another, yeah, and when exactly. you got a few papers under your belt, then Hans said, "Well, why don't you turn this into a PhD?" So I never started it with the intention oh. of getting a PhD. Okay. Um, and after having published a few papers, then people started to say, "Well, you know, if you go for you know if you go for a PhD." you get a title that may may help you career wise or may help you get funding to do more research. And so I, yeah, I listened to their advice and then yeah. in the end converted a, a, a number of articles on growing into a PhD thesis. And, and
2: has it really helped you get the funding? Because funding obviously is always the issue when it comes to research, right? Yeah. But having that, has that been a huge benefit?
1: I don't think it's helped me get funding because I yeah. didn't ever get, you know, I've never had the, the, the $100,000 funding uh, on groin research. Uh-huh. But I think it was instrumental in me being invited to go and work at Aspatar in, in Qatar, the big sports. And we're going to get to that. I'm meeting. excited.
2: Yeah.
1: And at that time, to end of 2012, Aspartar decided that they wanted to found a, a groin pain center, the sports groin pain center. Professor Per Holmick from Denmark was the, the leader at that time and he was coming in and out from Copenhagen a number of times a year to set up and, uh, and establish the centre together with the staff who were already there and they were looking for kind of a, a right-hand man and uh, with me having a, a PhD in groin injuries I was a considered to be a good candidate and fortunate enough to get the job when we moved out there at the start of 2013. Okay Um,
2: and I want to ask you about that but before I do that you talked about those mentors uh, having such enthusiasm and I know that there may be some medical students uh, that are planning on studying to become a doctor. Give me a specific quality that you that maybe they communicated with you that also uh, made your experience so great. Yeah,
1: I think a, a number of qualities are really important. First and foremost, I would say autonomy, where the, where you feel that you're given autonomy by your bosses, um, that they you know let you do clinics by yourself, um, that you would see patients on your own and be able to discuss them with you, that you'd be given responsibility in terms of your scheduling, that they trust you if you say, oh, Friday, I've got to go early and pick up the kids. From work for whatever reason that you'd make up those hours because you're a professional in your own way. So, yeah. you know, treating you with respect and, and giving you autonomy, I think, is a big, big part of that. Being yeah. friendly and empathic um, certainly really important for me in terms of mentorship and um, being good role models. I mean, both hardworking, honest, trustworthy. Yeah, all those
2: all those qualities that you would expect from people. Yep. Right. And I, I think yeah. I agree with you. Not that I did a medical residency, but I did an orthopedic residency after I became a physical therapist. And I think the qualities that I liked in to my mentors was that, that, that level of respect. And you're still looked at as a clinician that also can contribute, you know, some work to whatever we're looking at. Well, let's jump into the rehab standpoint. Cause you know, I feel like for some people growing strains, it seems like a fairly simple injury to comprehend, but I I imagine not everyone has your extensive knowledge about groin injury. So during your early research, what is an area about groin injuries that surprised you?
1: I've had a lot of surprises. I'd I'd say (laughs) my my very first paper on groin that we did, if I tell the story of that, back in 2006 or 2007, we had a, a conference for sports physicians in Holland on groin injuries. The last speaker of the day was a a senior Dutch sports physician, Dr. van der Sander, who's been treating athletes for many years with with an adductor muscle manipulation. And he gave a lecture saying that in these cases of long-standing adductor-related groin pain, he did this manipulation and that that cured a lot of the patients. And I was a skeptical young whippersnapper at that time and I thought like man that's that's bullshit because <laughs> the gold standard is this is rehabilitation you got to get in the gym you got to grind you got, uh-huh. got to train your core you got to train your reductors you got to put in the work and he was like well I put some warm packs on the leg and then I do this uh, this minute. manipulation which is really sore and to be honest our first research that we did we just called up 33 athletes who'd been treated by him and asked them like, how are you doing? It wasn't like the best science in the world, a retrospective <laughs> case series.
2: Oh yeah.
1: But, and I was expecting that it wouldn't be that good um, because you think like, what, what can that do? Yeah. Um, but the, the, the majority were really positive and quite a few of them had gone back to playing in a fairly short space of time and hadn't had recurrence.
0: Uh-huh. and
1: that that made us kind of sit up huh. and take it seriously
0: and yeah that,
1: that led to us establishing a, a randomized control trial where we compared this muscle manipulation to exercise therapy which i still would consider as being the gold standard in terms of rehabilitation
2: yeah okay is that muscle nip is it the a muscle nip or is it like a long a- access distraction manip? I know you weren't performing it, so I know it can be hard to... Yeah, and
1: I I mean, after after we showed that it had some, you know, clinical value, I've gone on to learn it and perform it, although less often now than I did in the early days. Yeah, with with one hand, you take hold of the adductor muscle, like compartment, and with the other hand, you grab the ankle, somebody holds them on the bed, and you take the hip in a big sweeping motion so you're applying the maximal tolerable stretch to the adductors Uh um, while sort of squeezing the adductor compartment with the other hand and then some really vigorous massaging of the the adductors and then three to five of these big circular motions and then recheck the tone and the pain afterwards.
2: Yeah. That's um, interesting. There's definitely some type of neural component going on to really yeah. help with that relief for sure.
1: And I've, I've been fascinated as to what the underlying mechanism may be. I've been I went mm-hmm. to Finland to Uvescular to look at a muscle wow. tone measuring machine. I went to Estonia to Tallinn to get this machine called the Myaton that measures muscle tone to <laughs> measure it pre and post manipulation so that's like where the
0: wow. you know, your
1: clinical vision and then this scientific like nerdiness kicks in. Yeah I, mean, I was gonna it. say
2: man you are a man on a mission. Well you <laughs> were also a man on the mission to be the lead author of the Doha agreement for medical providers. Um, it is a consensus statement about the terminology for groin pain in athletes and I'm just curious because I imagine this was a long project your team worked on. Uh, looking back what was the most most fulfilling aspect about that project for you because it's certainly something that you know I still you know use today when I'm kind of trying to the surfer is it pubic is it a doctor Ilya so is, what has fulfilled you most about that whole project
1: I think when people like you say that you use it yeah, <laughs> we we set out you do it as a bunch of nerds and experts together i'm glad you mentioned the word team because a project like that is for sure a team sport um i was fortunate to be the lead author but there's a there's a huge amount of work from lots and lots of people goes into something like that so great that you call that <laughs> team yourself but in in the end of the day you it makes me really happy a few times i was in a physiotherapy practice with my son last week he's injured his mpfl in his knee and i went oh, to no. see jasper the physio and on mm-hmm. the wall of his room there's a an, an a4 printout of the doha agreement hanging there and he uses the, and that they're the moments for me as a clinician that you say well somebody thinks this is useful enough to start using it in practice that's like mission accomplished
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, yeah. so yeah th- those comments like you just made that that's what you do it for yeah
2: Well, yes, I have to say Americans We, we do love all the work that's especially coming out of the British sports journal. I mean, I'm always amazed by that. And I'm so glad that again, that you're on this episode so people can like know the people behind all of this hard work. Well, we're going to talk specifically about, I, I don't know if it's the most recent article you've done, but it's the uh, return to sport after criteria-based rehabilitation of acute adductor injuries in males. Now I remember you did send me this link and it was funny because I was like, let me check out this link. And. I was like I've already read this link before so I said cool he we're all on the same page so uh in this study y'all excluded a number of professional footballs for a number of reasons whether that was they were out of their contract something else came up you being a researcher how tough is it to follow professional players compared to amateur athletes over a long period of time because I believe that was a cohort study study right
1: yeah this was a, this was a cohort study and to, to follow athletes, professional or amateur, over a long period of time, takes a huge amount of diligence and effort. In, in this case, huge kudos to, to Andrea Cerna, you, you mentioned his name already, for mm-hmm. putting in the grind there. Um, that's where we were fortunate to be in Aspatar. so we didn't have funding in the sense of no governmental body, but people were being paid to do research, um, and that basically made studies like this possible, where you can follow a cohort of 80 athletes, some of them amateur, but a lot of them professional and keep a track on them after they go back to pay to play. Mm -hmm. So then you can follow them up, call them at two months, call them at six months, call them at a year and see, check in again, see how they're doing. That takes a, a, a good system, a good organization and then, taking the time to if they don't answer the phone call them again call them again
2: so being and that nag essentially. yeah yeah
1: yeah the, the friendly <laughs> reminder we call it
2: <laughs> yeah you know as a PT you know those friendly appointment reminders make sure that you come to your appointment so you yeah, can get yeah. better
1: a, research is is no different yeah um, and they're all young active people and once they're back playing they're like Pff research, whatever. Uh, so you, <laughs> and,
2: and you're in, like, hey, I still need to finish this because we're halfway through.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so you would recognized.
2: say that it's, I, I guess there's, it's not easier doing amateur versus professional. They, they all have pretty much their challenges in, in one way or another.
1: Yeah. I, and the situation in Aspatar is, is a great setup for studying professionals because a lot of the professional players who play at the clubs, will come in and do their rehab at the central hospital, um, which gives you that opportunity to, to keep a track on them far better than, say, the system in Holland, where mm-hmm. the players will be doing rehab in their individual clubs. Um, and so that was a unique environment that truly facilitated doing that kind of study. I think it would be you know, impossible is a big word, but it would be very, very challenging to run a study like that in Holland. Yeah, um, and have professionals in it because the professionals would in holland do their do their rehab at the club
2: yeah and when you say professional athletes are we talking it could have been like premier league could have been all these top league in uh, europe or where exactly no,
1: the, the, this was the the qatar stars league. oh qatar
2: um
1: okay. so the know. the professional league in qatar Mm-hmm. Um, and there may be a couple of players from overseas in, in you know included in the study but the majority are athletes playing and, and training in Qatar yeah. well
2: Adam be honest what is the most frustrating part about research for you Ooh,
1: yeah that, that's a curveball that's a I curve know ball. I <laughs> had to
2: throw that in there
1: I was prepared I, some... I do
2: want people to realistically know some of the challenges that comes with being a researcher for sure
1: I find that a really tough one to answer in the sense that for me at this career phase now is where, where can you access or leverage resources? Um, a lot of the, the research that, that we'd like to do, there's no funding for it. Um, and so in my mind at the moment, one of the challenges I see is that the, the, the funding bodies very much dictate the direction of the research. And on a personal level, I have, a, you know, place huge value and emphasis on physical exercise and, and good rehabilitation as being the, the basis for recovery of the majority of sports injuries. Mm-hmm. Yet the, the funding bodies at the moment seem to be putting a lot of resources into biologicals um, and, you know, regenerative medicine mm-hmm. and so forth. And, I would say if it was up to me and it's not, but (laughs) if it were, I would like to see a lot more of that funding channeled into doing the basics well and getting us more knowledge and understanding on the, you know, the normal day-to-day rehabilitation rather than magic bullet regenerative medicine funding. Um, Yeah. And I would with that.
2: What do you think needs to happen to get more people on board to fund uh, things like that, what you mentioned?
1: I think that the, the the challenge is that there's no there's no money in rehab, in the sense that if you know we develop the the adductor injury protocol that you talked about, mm-hmm. that's out in the world, that's open access. There's no business model behind that. Whereas if I develop a certain system of a magic injection or cells um, quite often there'll be a business incentive behind that the goal is obviously to help people but the goal is to earn some money for a company that's developed that and yeah we've seen that that companies developing things with the covid injections really important that there's good r and d going on but mm-hmm. if i look at the field of sports injuries in general i would be much happier to see far more time and resources invested in the basics rather than magic bullets.
2: Absolutely. And you started to talk about that that protocol. And yeah, I also wanted to talk about um, that sports criteria-based rehabilitation. There are three milestones. You have to be pain-free, perform the control sports training, and then return to full team training. Interestingly, we're going back to the article with the adductor, of criteria. I'm curious because athletes, they said athletes who achieved the return to sport milestone one, which was being pain-free had statistically significant lower re-injury rate than athletes who did not. So I guess I'm curious when you're making a recommendation for an athlete, maybe who has done the rehab and maybe they, are not quite yet there, maybe like stability wise, dynamically, um, but they don't have pain, but they want to get back to their full team practices. What, what do you recommend? I mean, obviously you're going to be taking in the contextual factors of, you know, previous injury timing of the season, but what, what would you recommend to someone who doesn't necessarily have pain, but, and they feel like they're doing well?
1: Yeah, these are the conversations that we have every day. I would say in terms of the, my house style, I'm not paternalistic. So it's, I would see it as a conversation that you have. Normally, I mean, these, these players who didn't achieve becoming clinically pain-free and went back to play, that will normally be because of the contextual factors. There's a cup final. The coach really needs them. They'll weigh up that risk. And then say, OK, well, it is the cup final and then afterwards we're off for the whole summer. So maybe I'm going to throw caution to the wind and, and give it a whirl, um, which is the reality of elite level sports. And I have no issue with that. Um, if they understand that they may be then at a higher risk of re-injuring when they do that. So if I have the feeling that they understand what they're doing and that they can comprehend where they're at in the rehab, what would be the ideal scenario, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: that they but they understand the risk and they're willing to take the risk. Then I'm not the kind of person or doctor who would say like, no, no, don't do that. Yeah, um, it, they, they're professionals. They, yeah, it's it's they a professional those- sports environment, and if they're if they're comprehending and understanding and willing to accept the risk, then you know, fair enough. And it's it's not a, it's also it remains a soft tissue injury it's it's not a joint in, in that sense the long term if they tear their adductor again then yes they will have to rehab again mm-hmm. but it's i wouldn't see it it's not a career threatening thing to do
2: yeah and you added about you know the risk assessment because i'm sure there are some things you assess uh, regarding to risk tolerance as well what are some factors that you like to take in account so maybe if there's a clinician that is like okay like I think my athlete is doing well but what are some like maybe just simple things whether it's previous injury history that you always try to keep in the back of your mind before clearing someone and say hey you know you're good to go
1: we've, we've looked at this as well in, in a research setting together with Ian Schreer from Canada and that was a, a really cool it was a tiny study but a real eye-opener and what we did with that one was ask people to put a number on it because often we say you've got low risk, you've got high risk, um, but it's hard for, for clinicians to kind of do reasoning if you don't put a number on it. And what we did in that study was we had athletes who were coming back from a hamstring or an acute adductor and independently of each other, we asked the sports physician to estimate what do you think is their risk of recurrence in the next two months? the treating sports physiotherapist and the athlete themselves. So everyone knew where they were at in terms of recovery. Everyone knew the schedule for the next two months, like how many practices, how many matches. And then we asked the people, well, try and make an estimate of what you think the percentage risk is of recurrence. And I learned a couple of, I think, useful things for that. Firstly is that people are really inclined to just do a point estimate to say your risk is 10% or your risk is 20%. -hmm. But actually people who work in insurance normally do a spread there. So they're really good at estimating risk in the insurance sector. And they'll say, well, the risk is between 10 and 40 or 20 and 30. So the narrower that interval, the more confident you are that the the risk is about that that degree, the, the more uncertainty, the larger the interval will be. And that in general, the, the athletes estimate their risk to be way lower than the doctor or the physio. So the doctors or the physiotherapists <laughs> may be saying, well, you, we think the risk is 30 to 50 and the athletes seem to be born optimists like, Oh, it's five <laughs> to 10%. Um, and so it's easy to, to talk at cross purposes when you have these discussions, what, what I mean to be low risk. So in terms of having the conversation, I find it useful to try and put a number on it Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll generally say like, well, I think now you're you're pretty much as good as you you can be. And in the next two months, we know that the risk of re-injuring will be between 10 and 15%. Or if someone still has some pain on palpation, they're still feeling it a little bit when they're doing the the maximum uh, resisted adduction testing, then for me, that would bump up the risk. In my head, if they have a really heavy schedule and they've been out for a while, they're not physically prepared. That will bump up the risk. If it's their third time having that injury, for sure that will bump up the risk. Yeah. And then I'll try and force myself to put a figure on it, um, so that we're all making decisions on a kind of an agreed <laughs> risk yeah. assessment. So I, I'm. Then you might say, okay, well, I I figure that your risk of re-injury is between twenty and forty percent in the next two months.
2: Okay. Um.
1: Got and you. then it's it's their call, you know, it will be them together with the medical team at the club, or together with the coach to decide, okay, well, um, that's, that's fine. For me, I'm happy to go back that that's a value judgment.
2: Okay. That's, yeah. that's good. I, I have n- I never thought of it that way, you know, and that's funny you talk about how athletes underestimating their risk compared to medical providers, because when I was an athlete, I was definitely that one, like I'm good, I'm good to go. But with that, with athletes, you know, underestimating, I was also curious going back to that study was uh, when I looked at all the exercises that you guys took them through, you guys um, advise the athlete to perform it pain, I think, level two out of 10 on that numer- numerical pain scale. So athletes were the judge of what that um, was going to be. But I I just am curious because I, when I think about some amateur athletes, sometimes I'm like, well, do they really understand what a two out of 10 should feel? What type of cueing were you providing to the athletes to make sure that they really weren't overdoing it as they were progressing through their exercises
1: in yeah in general i think that with most injuries that i work with outside the groin as well we'll work with that pain controlled repetition maximum Mm -hmm. Um, and in the conversations that you have with with recreational athletes i would say to the athlete it's fine if you feel the injured spot when you're exercising it you know, zero is no pain, 10 is the maximum pain you can imagine. And, and feeling a two or a three says to me that you're training the injury. So you're going to train up that, that injured spot to be to be stronger and more loadable, which is what we want to achieve with rehab. So, you know, in, in the language I use, I'll be actively encourage them to seek out the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of how how they can judge whether or not they've gone too heavy will also be what kind of reaction they have. So for me, I would always say if you feel it the next day and you feel like it's a healthy training pain and that that's gone within 24 hours, then you're in the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. If you, if you don't feel any pain when you're rehabbing and you feel nothing the next day, probably you could go a bit harder and a bit, yeah. a bit heavier. And if you're, if you're feeling a a nasty pain or you're getting a reaction that's lasting two, three days, next time drop down your weight or drop down your reps a bit um, until you're back in that sort of two, three, feeling a very light pain while you're training and then up to a day reaction afterwards.
2: Yeah, that's good. And I, I really like that you kind of brought that progression because I think, and sometimes it happens just within clinics is that people think, you shouldn't feel anything exercise. And sometimes clinicians will prescribe just three, three sets out of 10. And it's like, are we really fatiguing the muscle or the tendon, whatever we're working? And if we're not, then we're really not doing, or or we're not at least being effective. So definitely some good clinical pearls with the groin injury. You mentioned how you obviously have had, you know, challenging patients. One of the toughest cases, I feel like it's always going to be that athlete who has maybe done the rehab, but they haven't seemed to fully completely heal as the sports medicine physician, because after they do the rehab, and if they're still struggling a little bit, they're coming back to you. What measures do you implement then after maybe if they've, you know, gone on three months doing a pretty the rehab very rigorously and consistently? What's next? Do you think?
1: Yeah, in, in general, I think patience is a virtue. So we, we've we looked at, a number of studies have looked at, say, for example, long-standard adductor-related groin pain. So when you're going to do a, a thorough exercise kind of program, then the data out there would suggest that four or five months is not unusual. Um, so and one of the things that I see in an academic setting where we're getting sent a lot of these kind of patients. One of the, the first things that I would discuss would be realistic expectation management. So an amateur player who's had issues on and off for a couple of seasons, maybe been out for three months unable to play, if they're going to start rehab right off the bat, they need to know there is no physio in the world no, <laughs> that can fix you in six weeks. Yeah. So everyone knows when you do your ACL, you know, you're, you're a season out. And people accept that for some reason, people don't (laughs) seem to accept that the groin could also (laughs) going to be take four or five months. So I would say step one is, especially for the amateur athletes, is just realistic expectation management. So that will be one of the key things I can do as a sports physician is buy time and help them to realize they're not the worst case in the world. Mm -hmm. um because often they'll be feeling really battered like oh i've been three months and i'm not there yet like oh i'm the worst ever and i can say well actually that's normal and that that can can really help them and hopefully they can turn that into motivation to keep going Mm -hmm. um if rehab's really stagnating one of the things we would consider would be that muscle manipulation but again you gotta you don't want to sell them a fallacy that's something that could help them a bit but it's not going to negate the need to do hard work and get fit again mm-hmm. um and one of the the other things we looked at a couple of years ago uh, roald and sebastian two sports physiotherapists in holland we did a research on groin compression shorts yeah so if they're kind of back but it's grumbling um then we know that wearing these compression shorts can reduce the the pain by you know two out of ten on a on a zero to ten scale during play
2: could they just be like like a general compression short or there's is is it a certain brand for those
1: yeah i I don't have shares but the brand that we we studied was a is a dutch firm who i enjoyed working with called knapman uh and they provided us for that research with uh the, the real shorts and they also provided placebo shorts um, okay. and so we did a placebo you know controlled trial where we got the football players who had groin injuries or groin pain but were still able to play they they wore tracksuit bottoms And then underneath the tracksuit bottoms, they either had no shorts on at all or the placebo shorts (laughs) or the the real compression shorts so that the researchers couldn't see what they were wearing. And then out on the pitch, they did an Illinois agility test. They shot footballs with a radar gun to see how hard they were shooting, did some sprint work. And what we saw is that when they had the real compression shorts on that they would then score, they had less pain, but it, it wasn't at the detriment of performance.
2: Okay. So this um, is something that, I mean, for some athletes, even if they're, you know, gone through the rehab, feeling a little bit of this, it's something they could wear throughout kind of their rehab, just kind of comfort.
1: Sure. Or the, or the players who've rehabbed really hard, but it's still going on, but they, they, they're just about able to play. Um This is a definitely like an adjunct that they can use, where they I've got you know quite a number of players who with the shorts are, are, are able to get by. Yeah, I see. <laughs> and it's, okay. it's not a miracle cure.
2: Uh, exactly. That's great that you said that because even sometimes people come to my clinic think, you know, a modality is going to quickly fix them. And it's like, not the case. Well, I'm glad that you talked about how sometimes a groin injuries can actually be more than three months. I think because we read in literature, you know, the, the grade one, two can be two to three weeks return. And then they say like grade three can be up to three months, but I feel like they're not necessarily taken into other contextual factors that could also impact the recovery. Well, so can you think of one case that was the longest time period that it took for an athlete to recover had you had like athletes who took nearly like nine months to truly be like pain-free and feeling like they are where they were at prior to that injury
1: yeah I think in in every injury I sound like an old fossil now but when you've been around for a bit then Uh then you all have these terrible cases When I I can think of a a Dutch professional player who comes to mind immediately where he came with inguinal related groin pain on one side. Mm -hmm. He did a thorough rehab and was unfortunately after two months not improved at all. And there we decided to do uh, a surgical procedure to reinforce the, the, the inguinal region on one side. He had that and he was going well in rehab afterwards. And just towards the end of his rehab, when he went back on the pitch, he suddenly developed a real inguinal hernia on the other side. I, he, oh <laughs> I remember he WhatsApped me a photo with this big, like, mandarin size swelling in his groin, like, what's going on here, dog? And it's like, oh, no. So then he, wow. then he went and had uh, surgery to correct his inguinal hernia on the other side and then developed an awful, awful long-standing adductor problem. And in, you know, in the academic hospital, we maybe do one adductor tenotomy a year or something, but he went on to be so restricted by his adductor, uh, despite having all the rehab we could throw at him, that he ended up having an adductor tenotomy, wow. um, <laughs> which is an incredibly rare uh, procedure here right. in Holland um and so he he was out for more than a whole season in the end uh, with you know one side yeah. then the hernia then the tenotomy and uh but he was yeah. an incredibly positive guy um and you know kept his head above water throughout the whole process and did did go back to playing professionally again
2: yeah and can you remind me the reason why uh you know, surgeons don't necessarily do the tenotomy as much. Is it that um, athletes don't truly really gain that strength back or?
1: I think there's some cultural differences
0: uh-huh.
1: um, as well, because in, in other countries, I know that people would proceed to tenotomy a lot, a lot quicker. So there's not, the athletes here and the, the clubs or whatever, they're not asking for it. Um, yeah. And I think over the years that we've become better and better at doing rehab well. So the need has reduced as well. The, the better you get at rehabbing, then the exactly. less failures you, the, that you will have. Yep. And also yeah. the reality is that a lot of amateur players, if they reach the point where they have to choose between either maybe choosing for another sport or someone going to cut something in their groin, just, they just they just say, well, I'm going gonna, gonna to give up football and just go to the gym and uh, yeah. do some bike riding. Um, so a lot of them will will just choose for an alternative sport um, okay. at that stage. Yeah.
2: Well, so- I know we're running out of time, but just real quick, you know, we talked about kind of your research and all of that that you've been doing. But you're also a physician, you're at the Amherst University Hospital. And then I think you also work at another clinic. And I don't know if it's Harlem. Can you just explain to me how you balance out your day? Because I imagine that there are going to be some medical students that are like, how do you do it all and have enough time to spend it with your family, your Dutch kids? How do you do it?
1: It's, it's one of the, the biggest challenges, I think, in any career is, is work-life balance. Um, our eldest child, Luke, is nearly 18 now. And from the moment he was born, I worked part time. Um, so I worked two days in the, in the academic hospital Wednesday, Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I work Monday, Friday at the clinic here in Harlem, close to where we live. Tuesday today is my day off. Um, walk the dog, go to the gym, yeah. do podcasts with cool people I from know. America. <laughs> <laughs> go go shopping. Uh, you know, cook the meal for tonight. Yeah. The nacho oven uh, oven dish we talked about. So uh-huh. uh, I, I'm continually struggling myself in terms of knowing how much work to take on to accept, um, and trying to find the time to. Yeah be a dad and, and hang out with the family. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And then the uh, the research just comes in between all of that, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. Wednesday afternoon in the academic hospital, I don't see patients. So I have some, you know, office hour time there where I'll try and meet with students, um, discuss papers, but most of the research happens in, you know, the the evening or the the weekend hours and I try and work as efficiently as I can and I enjoy it. So I don't see that like a being a, a struggle or something terrible. It's, it's also for me, it's the juice. Yeah. When you've done some research and a student's come up with some new ideas or we've got new data, then I don't see it like, Oh, I've got to look at that in the weekend. i they'll be like, oh, oh, I can look at that. I can look at their paper and, and help them with that. So that's not for me a burden.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. That's how I actually feel working as a physical therapist and sports and injury journalist. I enjoy it. So all the time that I've put into it, it's actually really fun. Well, on another note with students, this is the final stretch. Three questions for medical students and to help them when they're going through school and afterwards. First, what advice could you provide to medical students who hope to balance out roles as a practicing physician and researcher?
1: I think for me, practice has to come first. In early career phase, you've got to gain clinical experience. Certainly put that top of the list early on in your career, um, because then you can find something that you're interested in and you may be passionate about, and then that will fuel your interest to do research in that. So I would say if you're early phase sports physician, early phase uh, physiotherapist, start by just seeing a ton of patients building your clinical experience then when you say like okay, well this area really grips me, then maybe think about doing some research in in that field that you got the passion for. Mm-hmm.
2: And then secondly, Adam, I know you probably are going to feel uncomfortable me asking this, but what makes Adam so good at what he does, and how can other students take from some of those qualities that you have as a, a lead sports medicine physician?
1: Oh yeah, you're right. That makes me uncomfortable <laughs> <all> <laughs> for sure. That's, uh, the, the blowing your own trumpet thing is, I think, <laughs> something that's, that's hard, uh, I know. hard to do. I, I would hope that people who I work with would characterize me as being easygoing, reliable and, and mm-hmm. trustworthy and being able to add some value. And in that sense, I've you know, also invested in certain things that I do to upskill myself and been also uh, fortunate to have good mentors who've said like, oh, I think this would really suit you. Why don't you work mm-hmm. on that a bit more? If you upskill in that area, you'll be able to add more value and maybe develop yourself there as well. So that's also sometimes external influences have, have played a role. And mm-hmm. uh, just you know, putting in the time. And I would say I intentionally try and balance the the work-life balance. You know, I, I enjoy keeping fit and active myself yeah. um, and doing cool things outside of work as well.
2: You know, that's interesting because I feel like every medical provider that's been on my podcast, whether that's Tim Gabbitt or whoever is, um, they all love to stay active, even me. Not that I'm like an elite athlete anymore, but being active just kind of keeps me in line too. So, Totally agree. Well, what's next for you? What do you still hope to accomplish? What do we got cranking out? Are we doing any research just so my listeners can kind of know how they can follow as well as um, stay up to date on all that you guys are doing uh, there in Holland?
1: Big, exciting things on the horizon. Mm. Probably I'd say the most exciting thing we're working on at the moment will be the stuff regarding apophysitis. I think there's a real lack of awareness out there on pubic apophysitis. I have to give a big shout out to the team at Aspire Zone in Qatar, Rod Whiteley as well, Per Holmik, they put out a paper back in 2015 in the British Journal of Sports Medicine written by Saeed on uh, pubic apophysitis, Mm -hmm. which was an eye-opener for me. I've been knocking around in groin world for quite a while and never really considered that as a clinical phenomenon. And we've been working on that and with that since then. And there's a a lack of appreciation that the the pubic bone is the last bone in the human body to completely ossify. And I see a ton of high level, I guess that will be for you, college athletes. So young men and women who are at the point where they want to break through and get a contract, mm-hmm. they're, they're often playing elite youth sports and then doubling in the adult world as well. And that's a recipe for for overload. Yeah. Um, and around the groin region at the age of 17 to 19, that's normally still an apophysitis. Uh, we've been looking at that, how you can see that on plain x-ray with some advanced MRI techniques. So that's one where I'd say definitely watch this space. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Interesting. I'll I'll have to do my research because that's not something that immediately pops in my mind when I think of groin related stuff. Well, Adam, no, I got to say Dr. Weir because I feel like I can't leave without saying doctor. Well, doctor. I am so grateful again for you taking the time to do this with your incredibly busy schedule on your day off. Thank you for spending it with an American like me. And I know that my listeners will find a lot of what you talked about from clinical experience, research to everything in between very helpful.
1: Yeah, thanks. And thanks for having me on the show. I enjoyed listening to the, the, the back episodes and I'll definitely <laughs> put you in my podcast playlist from now on. So...
0: Thanks for listening with Dr. Adam Weir. Now don't forget to rate and tell me your thoughts.